Let's turn back to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, let's go directly to that 21st verse and see if we can cover these last three verses of this five-verse section describing the creature, the whole creation, the groanings and travail that they have until we are manifested and revealed to the universe as God's children. Verse 21, Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for these words of Holy Scripture. We thank Thee for this inspired revelation of truth from heaven. We thank Thee for the hidden wisdom of these words and the secrets and the covenant that You have shown us. We are blessed abundantly. We thank Thee for it. Give us understanding of it. And may it change our lives that we would live more fully, more passionately for Thee. It's in Jesus' name by whom this deliverance was purchased, in whose name we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 8. The 20th verse ended with the word hope. Because we read in that 20th verse that the creature, the whole creation, inanimate matter, irrational creatures, which means animals, that they were made subject to vanity, a troubled, dysfunctional, difficult, destructive, frustrating, rather profitless way of living, not by their choice, but by reason of God's choice, who subjected them under that bondage for Adam's sin. And we read some of those curses that applied to a serpent, that applied to the ground, that applied to a woman's conception, that applied to a woman's childbirth. We read those things in Genesis chapter 3. And so we saw it there, that it was subjected to those things by God, but He has not left it hopeless. Because there'll be a deliverance for the natural creation at the time that we are revealed to the universe. Now, when the 20th verse ended with the word hope, the apostle explains the hope in verse 21 and as to why the creature was earnestly expecting some change in this personification of the natural creation. So we start the verse 21 with the word because. There's hope in verse 20 and there's an earnest expectation in verse 19 because of this fact that Paul is going to state now, the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The word because tells us why there's hope. Because there's going to be a deliverance for the natural creation. This is a personification. So we want to remember that. 
when we read the words earnest expectation, when we read the words hope, when we read the words not willingly, when we read the words groaning and travailing, as we will in the next verse, we want to remember that it's a personification. I want you to notice, though, very quickly, because the creature, which we've already defined as the animal world and the, the, the world of matter in the universe, whether it's terrestrial or celestial matter, it's under the bondage of sin. Because the creature itself, itself here, is a reflexive pronoun drawing attention and emphasis to the unique identity of the creature in distinction from the sons of God and the children of God later in the verse. This is so important to me that we prove conclusively, and the Lord took pains in this passage, that we would not think that the creature is the new creature, that the creature is the children of God. So there are pains taken to save us from such confusion and double talk. Because the creature itself, that is, you don't need that word, because the creature shall be delivered. Doesn't that just make as good a sense to you? There's two words of emphasis there to tell you that the creature is distinct and separate from the children of God in the latter part of the verse. Because the creature itself, a reflexive pronoun following immediately upon the noun itself, also is an adverb meaning there's going to be two things delivered from the bondage of corruption. Now I just get amused at the Word of God because the Holy Spirit could just as easily have written, because the creature shall be delivered. But He didn't. He put a reflexive pronoun in there, and He put an adverb in there to make sure that you understood that the creature is being specifically identified and emphasized as different from the children of God, and that there are two bodies, two objects in mind for future deliverance. The creature and the children of God, because that's what the word also requires. Remember, we love 1 Peter 3 and verse 21. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. So we know there are two figures and two salvations in verses 20 and 21 of 1 Peter 3. There's Noah and his ark, and there's baptism. And we have it here. There's two objects that are going to be delivered. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption. You have had pets that you loved, and they died. You have had plants that you loved, and they died. You have had flowers given to you, and before long, they were in the pages of a book, dried out completely, because everything dies. There is a bondage of corruption in the plant world, in the animal world, and we read in Genesis chapter 3, in the dirt world, because the ground was cursed. Let's chase a rabbit for a moment. Some will say, but I think that curse was lifted. Because in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 29, when Noah was born, he was given the name Noah, because he's going to provide us comfort concerning the curse on the ground. Good point. Good point. Let's go read about Noah. When Noah got off the ark, the Lord smelled the sacrifice that God had made. And God said in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 21, I will no more again 
curse the ground for man's sake, because the thought of man is evil continually from his youth, and I will never again anymore drown the earth with a flood. All he said in there is, it's not going to happen again. There's not going to be another curse on the ground to add to the one we've got, and there's not going to be another flood of the whole earth to add to the one we just had. That's Genesis 8.21. It's still, if you don't believe that, then I'm going to call your house on the hottest day of this next summer and ask you to cut my grass and trim my bushes. Because then we will agree together that the curse is still there. And that isn't even scratching. Listen, who wants to dig in South Carolina soil? They don't even have soil. It's clay. It's not black dirt. Who wants to scratch in that and plant something? It is work. It is gonna, it's gonna be by the sweat of your brow. And when I've got weeds, what are you going to tell them? Where, how are you going to explain their existence in my yard? I didn't ask for them, and I didn't plant them. But they came anyway. But that's a little rabbit. Because when you're reading your Bible, you're going to find in chapter 5 that when Noah was named, he's going to provide comfort for us. And the comfort is in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 21. I won't do it again. Because I've learned something about man, and God doesn't learn anything the way we learn. But he wrote, the thoughts of man are evil continually from his youth. I cursed the earth once. He's going to be the same perpetually. I drowned the earth once. He's a sinner. He's always going to be a sinner. The next total curse on this earth is going to be one of fire that will destroy everything. And he'll start all over. That's the comfort. And it was comforting. If you had just come through a flood, would you like to know that there's not going to be another one next month? If you had just been scratching through the curse, would you be glad to know that because you see the wickedness in the papers every day, that there's not going to be another curse to make it even worse? That was comfort. It stayed at this point. And the Lord said, I've smelled this sacrifice and it's pleasing to me. I will not do it again. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The emphasis on the word glory in this passage should excite you. Glory was introduced in verse 17 where it's describing us as being heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ by saying, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. We're going to be glorified together with Jesus Christ as joint heirs, sons of God. He's going to, we're going to look like Him, 1 John 3, 2 tells us. We don't, beloved, it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. We're going to look like the Lord Jesus Christ because we're going to be glorified. In 2 Thessalonians 1, if you read it last evening, it says when He comes to be glorified in His saints. Not to be glorified to His saints, Not to be glorified by His saints, to be glorified in His saints. Because He is going to glorify us. And listen, to glorify these ugly, corruptible, stinking carcasses, it's going to bring Him glory. He's going to be glorified in His saints by the work He does on us. You know, don't they have reality television programs about great transformations or something? They take some ugly skag. And with enough plastic surgery and stuff and enough paint, they can make her look beautiful three months later and put her on television. Is there some 
Never mind. I'm glad. You're all looking at me with blank stares. You don't even know that there's programs out there like that. But there's going to be a transformation taking place when the Lord takes us, us ugly skags, and turns us into beautiful, fully clothed in His righteousness, perfect and glorified spiritual bodies that 1 Corinthians 15 describes. That's the glorious liberty of the children of God. It is going to include everything else that was cursed because of sin. Because sin, as far as we and the world that we are going to live in, will be lifted by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. The sins of the reprobate angels and the sins of reprobate mankind will still be upon them in a very destructive, unhappy, fearful, terrible place called the lake of fire. Where the proper, just, holy judgment for sin will take place. What a contrast. What a contrast into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So much could be said. I hope that you're very attentive as you read about things in nature, whether it's a tsunami, whether it's a thunderstorm. When there's a thunderstorm and you, you shake in your bed, you jerk in your bed because you're afraid of that noise. Some aren't. Some are. There wasn't noise like that. You say, but God talks about that noise. Sure He does. He tells you He wants you to know that's His voice. He divides the flame of fires. He sends those bolts of lightning. But the scary part of things, the destructive part of things, where those bolts of lightning kill men, start fires, burn down forests, that is not part of the design of a very good creation. That is the result of sin because it involves death. When God puts on a display for you in eternity, you will never jerk with fear. Because there will be no fear. There will be no pain, and fear is pain. There will only be pleasure. When God gives us glorified bodies, minds, hearts, in a glorified world, it will all be delivered from the bondage of corruption. The winding down of our present universe by the laws of entropy and the second law of thermodynamics, which I do not believe that are necessary to be read, explained, or applied in this passage because of what it says to open the 22nd verse, for we know it is common sense and common knowledge to basic readers of the Bible that there is a messed up world that we live in. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, is our 22nd verse. The Bible tells us that there are certain things that we know by nature. We're supposed to know by nature. This generation is so unnatural and without natural affection that it gets confused that men desire women for marriage, not men. And that women desire men for marriage, not other women. It tells us that in Romans chapter 1. It's the natural use of the woman. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it tells us that doth not nature itself, there's a reflexive pronoun, doth not nature itself teach you that it's a shame for a man to have long hair. There are things that we know, and this is an obvious thing as well. We see the mayhem confusion, chaos, starvation, death, disease, and sickness in plants, pestilences coming upon those plants, animals, famines for animals, forest fires burning up animals. 
and we see all that and we know that there's a real problem. We know it. For we know that the whole creation groans, groaneth and travaileth. Now this is not the noise of a windstorm that causes one branch to rub against a different branch and make a groaning-like sound. You're missing the personification. Groaning and travailing, which travailing is in birth, birth pangs, to bring forth to the birth, those things are human. Those things are personal, but they're applied to inanimate matter, dirt, and irrational creatures, animals, for us to get the lesson here that the whole creation is not the way it should be. But it will be the way it should be, and the way it will be, and the way it once was, when it's restored in the luster that it once had before sin was in the world. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Now, when we had that little word together in there, that requires more than one thing. To do something together, you've got to have someone else to do it together with. And so together is taking that singular collective noun, the creature, which has just been described as the whole creation, and is adding to that the word together, that every part of it, every animal, every bird, every fish, every tree, every plant, every part of the earth, do you know how much of this earth is just wasted? It's just desert. Have you ever taken a good Google Earth look at the desert? Why? What's a desert for? It doesn't produce anything. It's ugly. It's hot. You say, well, there's some deserts that are beautiful. Then move there. Why are there those things? They're going to be lifted. There'll be no more sea. You won't be troubled by storms or the fear of a sea in its size, immensity, and power. The whole creation groans and travails together. All these different parts and pieces of it, of the animal world, of the material world, all of them together are under this burden. They aren't actually groaning and they aren't actually travailing. It's a personification of them. If it were a person, it would be a person groaning and a person in travail, painful existence, waiting for an event with an earnest expectation for that event, and that's to be delivered from its bondage of corruption. And so, Romans eight nineteen through 22. But together has introduced a plurality of things. Because you're going to need that as we go into verse 23. Let me take you on a, less, a Bible lesson of collective nouns. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is a rabbit trail. But I want you to understand your Bible so that when you read, singulars and plurals are not always important. Sometimes they're important. Now, they're important in Galatians 3.16. And do you know how we know they're important in Galatians 3.16? Because God told us they were important. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. Now that's where singulars and plurals are very important. But sometimes they're not. And if you understand a collective noun, then you'll appreciate a collective noun is plural, but it, it uses the singular. I want to show you this in First Timothy chapter 2 because I want, 
I have seen and heard enough questions from you about the singular and plural pronouns in Romans chapter 8 that this is worth the three minutes. 1 Timothy chapter 2, in like manner also the women. What is the number of that noun? Singular or plural? 1 Timothy 2.9, in like manner also that women. What's the number of that noun? Plural. Adorn themselves and themselves. What is the number of that pronoun? Plural. In modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women, the number of that noun. Plural. Professing godliness with good works. Let the woman... Now what woman is he talking about? Learn in silence with all subjection. Is he talking about Eve, Jezebel, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, or Martha? What is the number of that noun? Be very careful in your answer. The number of that noun is a singular because it's a collective noun for all women. The women have been, we've had three. Two nouns, one pronoun, plural. And now that same group is identified with a singular noun. Are you confused? No, you shouldn't be. But do people get confused in Romans chapter 8? Yes, they do. So we're going to go through this lesson all the way to the bottom. Let the woman. Is it a particular woman or is it all women? All women referenced under a collective noun. Let the woman or all women Learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman. Oh, he wants to get specific. He's not going to let a single woman. Do you know how often I get questions from our website or from Christians around the world? What do you think about women preaching? Well, this is one of the passages we go to. The answer to that question is rather easy. And here's where we go. And look at he has shifted to a woman. He isn't using a collective noun. He's using every woman considered one at a time by themselves should never be in a role of teaching and preaching. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman. Collective noun, so it's singular, and it's referring to, it's not a collective noun, It's referring to the first woman, Eve, who was deceived and was in the transgression. And the Lord looks at all women the same way through their first mother. Notwithstanding, she is a pronoun in verse 15, and it's singular, but it's referring to all women. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they. That's a plural pronoun. Are you with me on the lesson? A collective noun. Did you see the a woman, the woman, women, they, themselves, she? Are you confused? Can you make your way through the passage? Okay, let's go back to Romans 8. Because we've got the same situation there, and it shouldn't disturb you. Romans chapter 8 and verse 23. And not only they. Now, if it was Arthur Pink preaching... He would tell you that since the word they is in italics, it's not part of the Bible. It was added by the translators. We will say it was added by the translators by the providence of God in order to fill out the sense 
in translating from Greek into English, because if you don't make interpolations with words like this, it won't make any sense, and you'll end up with Elhanan killing Goliath, because you won't have the words the brother of in 2 Samuel 21.19. I hope it in your Bible, is they in italics? That means our translators were so honest, they wanted to tell you what words they interpolated and stuck in our Bibles. But it's English words necessary to give the full sense of the Hebrew and the Greek. We want those words. We trust those words. When the Lord Jesus Christ argued from the word, I'm sorry, this is a third rabbit. I do keep track of my rabbits because I don't chase very many very often. When Jesus made an argument about the resurrection of the dead to the Sadducees, and he said that there was truth and doctrine in the words, I am, where did the word am come from? Is it in italics? Yes, it is. Jesus argued, this is why we study the Bible, brethren. We don't sit around and read people, and because they say something, believe it. We go into the Bible, and we search it from cover to cover, and we find out that Jesus made one of his arguments from a word in italics. Now, how precious is that to you? Is that worth tuition for a a course in Bible study? It should be. That's precious. Why did God say to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when Abraham was long dead? I am. The, the power and importance of that word, and it's in italics. Here we are. An italicized word in verse 23, they. It's a plural pronoun, and it's referring to the whole creation. But the Lord tipped you off about it by giving you the word together in the last part of 22. Because the whole creation is doing something together. And it's not doing it together with us. It's doing it together with itself. Because verse 23 distinguishes us from them very clearly. And I love this and I rejoice and I thank God. And not only they. Not only they. That is the third person. But ourselves. That is the first person. Not only they. But ourselves, we are different from them. Ourselves are different from they. There's two things under consideration here. And I know I'm beating a dead horse, but I want to keep the horse dead. And that is that it doesn't ever rear its ugly head that the creature is the children of God. Do you see what the Holy Spirit's doing with our language? It's wonderful. I love every word. I love every syllable. Of what we have right here. There's two different things. The creature is not the new creature. The creature is not believers. The creature is not God's elect. The creature is the natural whole creation. And we are distinct from it. And we proved that last Sunday in the 19th verse. But as we proceed forward, we find the Holy Spirit choosing terminology that just proves it over and over again. And there's no too much proving for me if the Holy Spirit chooses it. If the Holy Spirit chooses five times to show me in the terminology that there are distinctions between the two categories, I rejoice in every one of them. Every word of God is pure, my brethren, and you shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And when I see they and ourselves, and they is in italics and ourselves is not, I get excited. And when I see the adverb also, meaning that there's two categories, one's groaning and another one's groaning also. I see another proof that our position is right on this passage. 
Do you, do you understand where my vehemence and my repetition? Don't be confused about this passage. I was taught an error on this passage, as you might have suspected by now. I love this passage. I love the whole of Romans 8. And these five verses in the middle of it are precious. And not only they, referring to the whole creation from verse 22, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now let's just pull that out for a moment because it's enclosed in commas, meaning that we can do so. It is a non-restrictive phrase. So for the moment, let's just push it aside and let's read the verse again. And not only they, but ourselves also, even we ourselves, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. See, the whole creation is groaning in verse 22. And even we ourselves, even an adverb drawing emphatic emphasis on a new object of a general proposition made earlier. Even we ourselves. Another reflexive pronoun focusing on we. It's not necessary. Look at how it could read in Romans 8.23. And not only they, but ourselves also. Even we grown within ourselves. Why didn't the Holy Spirit just write, even we, grown within ourselves? Why these extra words? Why is ourselves jammed into the second half of the verse when it's already in the first half of the verse? Because it's a reflexive pronoun drawing emphasis to the fact that we are different from they. I'm not going to chase another rabbit and I want to. It's reflexive pronouns that are right here in Romans chapter 8. If I just mention it, is it chasing the rabbit? Okay, I'll just mention it then. The Spirit itself. Verse 16, verse 26. What in the world is the word itself there for? Just that you can get an English lesson. Do you know how blessed we would have been if we'd have gone to school and that it just pulled out a King James Bible and taught us these things? Amen. Do you know how old I was to learn these things? I sure didn't learn them in school. I learned all about girls, sports, cars, and motorcycles but I didn't learn about reflexive pronouns. I had a hard enough time trying to figure out what a pronoun was because I hadn't read about it in Cycle World. I hadn't read about it in Track and Field News. And I didn't learn it by watching the cheerleaders. You know, the McGuffey readers are so much based on the King James Bible. You're taught your English grammar out of this book. These are precious proofs that the Holy Spirit just keeps patting us on the back. You've got it right. Son, you've got it right. Do you know what the Bible says? You'll hear a word in your ear. This is the way. Walk ye in it. He's telling us we have the truth about this passage. Even we ourselves, even as an adverb making us a specific application of the general proposition of groaning and travailing. Even we, even we ourselves... Ourselves is another reflexive pronoun there in the second half, emphasizing the fact that we are different from the other body that's been mentioned. Enough about that. Let's go get what's in commas. The non-restrictive element, it's information that is added that is precious, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. They don't. We have the Spirit of God. When I say they, what do I mean? The creation. 
the creature, the whole creation. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We ourselves, and ourselves again, identified after this clause, are the only ones with the Spirit. Now, what does this phrase mean, which had the first fruits of the Spirit? Now, he's addressing the Romans. He's not addressing a group of the apostles from the day of Pentecost. He's addressing the Romans many years later, and he's addressing us through the Romans, and he's addressing the Romans and us by describing character traits universally true of all believers of all ages. There is no generational distinction here whatsoever about the first fruits being the ones that got the Spirit first. It's the true use of the word first fruits. First fruits is a Bible word about their second feast of the year. The second feast of the year, which was Pentecost, you would bring the first produce from the wheat harvest. And you would offer it as an offering before the Lord. And it was called the first fruits because it was the first evidence of the great harvest that was going to be kept at the Feast of Ingathering, also known as the Feast of Booths, at the end of the season. And you can read about this in Exodus chapter 23, where the two feasts are identified, the first fruits and then the Feast of Ingathering 50 days later. Where you, where you bring everything in. It's called first fruits. Because when you've got first fruits, you know that a big harvest is coming. I mean, if you've got some good sheaves of wheat to wave before the Lord and to give as a sacrifice, you know that the big day is coming just a little bit later. And when we have the Holy Spirit in us testifying that we are the children of God, that future day is coming because we have the first fruits. Now, what's another word that we could use for first fruits? If first fruits means a little bit of the big thing that's coming, what else could we call it when we put down a little bit for a big transaction price? Earnest. One's mosaic, one's Moses, the word first fruits, the other is economic, earnest. Yeah, we have a passage that tells us what the Holy Spirit is, that He's truly the earnest, giving us an explanation of this phrase, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. When, when describing our physical redemption, our bodies being redeemed from the grave, which is the, the theme of verse 23, haven't got to the words yet, when it's talking about our eternal inheritance, is there a passage that tells us the Holy Spirit is the earnest? It's Ephesians chapter 1. Please go to Ephesians chapter 1 and let us see that Holy Spirit inside of you. If you're, if you're a child of God, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're none of His. If you're Christ, you have the Spirit of God. If that Spirit of God does not speak to you, that you're a child of God, that this stuff is real, and that heaven is coming, it's because you've quenched or grieved the Spirit of God. God gave you His own Spirit inside you to know and believe the deep things of God. Because this stuff is beyond human comprehension. There's got to be some spirit, supernatural enablement to believe such fantastic things. Well, that testimony inside us by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In whom ye also trusted. Paul has just said he was one of the first ones to trust Christ. Verse 12. In whom ye also. So there's a second category of people who trusted, and it's the Ephesians. In whom ye also trusted. After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel, that is the good news of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed 
with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest. Romans 8 would say it's the first fruits. Ephesians 1 would say which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. What is the purchased possession? Your body that has been bought by the Lord Jesus Christ. What is its redemption? Romans 8.23, where we are, delivering it out of the grave. The redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of His glory. Now what is the down payment or the surety bond or the performance guarantee that God will most certainly give you your inheritance and redeem your body from the power of the grave? What is it? It's the presence of the Holy Spirit that seals us by a divine seal upon us, changing us from all other men. He that is spiritual judgeth all things. He that is spiritual hath the mind of Christ. We live differently. We have things revealed to us differently. We believe this Bible instead of considering it foolishness. And it's the earnest of our inheritance. It's the first fruits. If we've got the Spirit, we're going to get the rest. If we can wave a good sheave of wheat, there's going to be a great harvest. If we've got 3% paid by somebody in cash and the check is cleared, we know they're going to perform on completing a real estate transaction. We call it an earnest deposit or earnest money. Romans 8.23 Does Paul say anywhere else that the Holy Spirit is the earnest? 2 Corinthians 1.22 2 Corinthians 5.5 But i got a better one for you. Hold your hand. I'm sorry I turned you back there so quickly. Hold your hand at Romans 8 and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I want to prove that word first fruits one more time. Now, did you see the similarity between Romans 8.23 and Ephesians 1.14? Were they describing the very same thing? Inheritance and the redemption of our bodies? Were they describing the same thing? Paul in one place uses first fruits of the Spirit, meaning it's the first evidence that we have of all that's coming later, and in the other place, he uses the word earnest, which we understand a little bit better than first fruits because you haven't kept the feast of first fruits too many times in your life. Most of you aren't even farmers. Do we have a farmer? First Corinthians 15. Just trying to figure out where I want to start and not read the whole chapter to you. Verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ... We are of all men most miserable. Then is he talking about the next life, since he says that? Are we talking about the resurrection of the dead and the hope of the next life? Because if we don't have that, then we are of all men most miserable as Christians. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. He's been raised from the dead, and he is our brother. We are His brothers by the predestinating grace of God. If He's been raised from the dead, then we're going to be raised from the dead as much as the first sheave of wheat offered on the day of Pentecost was waved before the Lord was the evidence that there was going to be a great ingathering for the feast of ingathering later in the year. Let's keep reading. That's it. Thank you, Lord, for comparing Scripture with Scripture and spiritual things with spiritual things. Verse 21, For since by man came death... Adam, by man came also the resurrection of the dead, Jesus. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all, shall all that are in Christ be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, they that are Christ, 
at His coming. Then cometh the end, and we can keep right on reading, because it's all wonderful words about the very same event as Romans 8.23, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Jesus is the first fruits from the grave, because He's the first one to rise from the dead. Because He has risen from the dead, all of us will follow Him. We are His brothers. We are all of one. We cannot be left behind. He's the first fruits of the great ingathering harvest of all the elect of God. The Holy Spirit is in us as an evidence of all that's coming. He is the earnest of our inheritance. And so Paul uses the word first fruits in Romans 8.23. And not only they, referring to the constituent parts of the whole creation, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, we have the evidence that this eternal inheritance is ours, even we ourselves grown much like the natural creation and its personification that I've just used within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. That is the purchased possession from Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 14. We are waiting. Now you young people, you don't understand this yet. You should understand it by faith. You look in the mirror and everything is beautiful. Everything is clear. Everything is firm. Everything is wonderful. You pull a bicep pose and it gets bigger every day eating Coke and cookies for a few years. Then you look in the mirror and there's one blemish or age spot. Then there's two. Then there's 200. Then there's 2,000. Everything goes south. What was once the chest becomes breasts. Your belly falls out of your pants. Everything goes south. Everything turns terrible. You eat the same cookies and chips or you smell them or you see them in a grocery store and just look at them and you gain weight. It's corruption. It's our bodies. And we groan. But you know, young people don't groan because they're not wise enough and because we don't have old people dying in the same house with young people like every generation before us had. Hospice is dangerous to our moral well-being. But hospice has its benefits But listen, generations in the past, do you know what? Pretty little 17-year-old girls gave up their beds to have 77-year-old grandmothers that were once pretty 17-year-old girls die in their beds. We groan. I hate so many things about my body right now, I couldn't list them in a two-hour sermon. You know, all you have to do is go to a track and pretend that you're back in the 10th grade and you're going to run a quarter mile and beat another high school. You won't make it one quarter of the way around that track before you'll need CPR and they'll have to bring the paddles to shock you back into life. You go downstairs and you take some weights off a bench and you tell your wife if it was a broom handle it would be too much. Things change and we groan and we struggle with sin and discouragement and tiredness, and we don't have the zeal that we once had and that we want to have, and so we groan. The whole creation's groaning, and we ourselves also are groaning. Because, brethren, the Apostle Paul believed in the phases of salvation. He says, because we are waiting for the adoption. Now, how can he say that when he said in verses 17 and 16 that we were already adopted? Because Paul believed in the phases of salvation, even to the facets of salvation, the one called adoption. To wit, and he tells me what he means, 
the redemption of my body. It's the last part of adoption. I'm going to have a perfect glorified body to live in that perfect mansion with my Father forever who adopted me out of the orphanage of this sinful world. And that's what we're waiting for. And so the Apostle has taken a five-verse explanation using a personification to explain what he meant in verse 18 when he said, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, whatever they might be, are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. We have a day coming of perfect bodies, perfect minds, perfect souls, in a perfect world, in perfect fellowship with a perfect Heavenly Father and a perfect older brother named Jesus Christ forever and ever. And this eternal weight of glory should always be before our eyes so that our light affliction for a moment doesn't discourage us or defeat us. And knowing these things, brethren, therefore, let us be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen and amen.